I know it's interesting. John's introducing global perspectives, and then up walks the middle-aged white guy from <laughs> from <laughs> from U- the U.S. So, trust me, it's coming. <laughs> okay, this is, I just have to apologize for myself right now. Uh, anyway, um, Michael Murphy is an artist and sculptor who's pioneered an art form known as perceptual art, perceptual art. I don't know if you've seen this before or heard of this, but it's fascinating. And he challenges the viewer's perspective by using ordinary objects to create three-dimensional renderings of flat images. And, and here's an example we have on the screen here. Uh, maybe you've seen this before. Have any of you seen this before? Maybe a few of you have. Okay, interesting. A couple of you have seen this before. But he created this work by actually hanging over 1,200 floating spheres from the ceiling, all right? And in this piece, the white walls of the room actually serve as the canvas for this three-dimensional work. Now, some of you might find this interesting. Others of you might think, well, actually, I'm not into modern art. But what I want you to notice is what happens as you move to another spot in the room, and you can kind of see it happening right now, and how that dramatically changes your perspective. Pretty cool, huh? When we see it from a different perspective, I mean, what we see is, you know, dramatically different than what we saw right before. I think you'd have to agree with me. But the truth is, I mean, we all view the world from our own perspective, right? How can we view it from anybody else's perspective? That's the only perspective we actually own and and can have. It's natural. Each of us, I think, is shaped by our culture, um, individual experiences, our backgrounds, and our traditions. And so that naturally influences what we see, what we perceive. And that creates a challenge. Because on our own, we never see a complete picture. By ourselves, we can never gain the fullest understanding. And so that's why today, as John said, we want to challenge you to see things from a different perspective. Uh, Today is the first week in a series we're calling Perspectives, Kingdom Perspectives, and it's a three-week series. We're not going to do it three weeks in a row. We'll actually have one uh, today. We'll have one in June and another one in August And for each installment of this series, we're going to look at a different passage of Scripture, a a selection from the Bible, a a Bible story through three different cultural perspectives or people. And so what you'll hear is three different seven-minute talks on a selected passage. And I think what you'll find, and I'm super excited about this, I think what you'll find is that as each one person that speaks draws on their own culture and experience, it'll help us see things actually see things in the text, in the story, in the scripture that maybe you'd never seen on your own. And I think for all of us, it's it's just a a great reminder that to truly understand and live in the kingdom of God, we need the voices and perspectives and contributions of uh, every nation, tribe, and language. And we need to view view reality from different perspectives. And so today we're going to look at the parable of the lost son. Uh, the parable of the lost son, by which our own mission, helping people find their way back to God, was actually based on that, came from that parable. So you're going to hear from uh, Dave Ferguson, our lead pastor. Some of you might know him. I'm quite familiar with him. He's my brother. I've heard his perspective for many years. So I'll just kind of, you know, endure that one. Uh, but then we're going to have in additional teachers also that you'll hear their perspectives. And I'm excited to um, introduce to you Faith Yuri Cho. Faith is the CEO and founder of the Honor Summit. It's a nonprofit organization that centers Asian American women in the mission of God alongside her husband, uh, David. She's the co-founder and co-pastor of Mosaic Church in New Jersey, just outside of New York City. She's been a teaching pastor for, uh, since she was 19 years old. She's been leading in the church since she was like, or for 18 years. So she's um, been at this for quite some time. 
We're also going to hear from Moses Mukisa, uh, Moses and his wife Sarah, our lead pastors of Worship Harvest Ministries, an influential church in Kampala, Uganda. Uh, they have 56 locations and over 1,000 small groups and missional communities, which are kind of like our micro churches. Uh, both of these individuals are, are friends of ours, partners of ours. We work alongside them globally. And uh, World Harvest is committed to catalyzing spiritual, social, and economic renewal locally and globally. Uh, I found this in the New York Times this morning. Maybe you saw this as I was walking out the door, basically. I thought this was so relevant to what we're talking about today. Uh, maybe you saw this, or you could look it up when you go home. But in 1900, about 80% of the world's Christian population lived in the Western world and about 20% in the majority world. Let me read that again. In 1900, 80% of the world's Christian population lived in the Western world and about 20% in the majority world. This writer uses the term majority world to describe non-Western countries that make up the greatest of our world's population. Now, by 2000, all right, 100 years later, only 37% of Christians lived in the Western world and nearly two-thirds lived in the majority world. Incredible shift. Sub-Saharan Africa had the most striking growth. They have grown from only 9% Christians at the beginning of the 20th century to almost 45% by the end of the 20th century. There are around 685 million Christians in Africa alone. Incredible. We don't always think of it that way. Um, the Western world, which is where we live, uh, is by far the minority when it comes to Christianity. So I think, again, this conversation today is so, so relevant. Uh, before we hear from Faith, uh, Moses, and Dave, we'll begin with a reading of the text. Um, here it is, all right? The parable of the lost son. Luke 15, 11 to 32. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach, with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arm around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. 
Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near to their house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what is going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, after all of these years that I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. I saw the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Hey Community Church, my name is Faith Yuri Cho. I am a pastor from Northern New Jersey, and alongside my husband, we planted Mosaic Covenant Church alongside our four children and two dogs. It's, it's a huge party all the time. It is my joy to be able to talk about the parable of the lost son. But before I do, just to give you some context, I am Korean American. I was born in South Korea, which is my motherland. But starting from the age of three, America became my homeland. And so with that context in mind, the part about this parable of the lost son that really just sticks out to me is the father's obvious and extravagant love. The father's love needs no interpretation here. It could be felt. It's, it's visible. It's tangible. I mean, if anybody runs after you from afar, throws his arms around you and kisses you, and clothes you, there is a high chance that you will feel that love, that you will know that you are loved. This is the Father's love. It needs no interpretation. It is cross-cultural. You don't need to read in between the lines. And this is significant uh, for someone from my background because oftentimes the immigrant story is that when you come to America, there are many barriers within the family. There are a lot of layers. Part of the, those layers is, is a language barrier, uh, a cultural barrier, uh, a generational barrier. So it's actually very common for a father to never fully understand what his son is saying. And it's also very common for a daughter to never fully understand what her mother is saying um, because neither party understands each other's language perfectly. Not only that, they don't understand each other's culture perfectly. They, they come from different times. They come from different places, different worlds. And so in immigrant families, many times we have to interpret to understand each other's love. We have to read in between the lines. We have to uh, do it through gestures, through nuanced communication. Um, there's a saying with Korean Americans, it's not a common saying per se, but everybody knows it. That, you know what, your parents may never um, hug you or tell you that they love you. Um, they may never apologize to you, maybe. But if they cut fruit for you and leave it on a platter 
and that platter is on your desk in your room, that means that your mother or maybe even your grandmother, that means they love you. And that's how we learn how to receive love from one another in those nuanced ways, those, those gestures. But here, the Father's love needs no interpretation. There, there needs no, there, there need be no translator in this. It is seen, it is felt, it is understood. And not only that, there's so much attention on the son that could feel quite foreign to a child from an immigrant home, at least a first generation immigrant home, because there's a high chance that the immigrant child has grown up with the parents working really hard to make a living in this new world. And so as the parents are busy doing that, the child oftentimes raises themselves. They would do their own administrative work for school. They would fill out their own parental consent forms. Sometimes they'll make their own dinners and eat alone on the table. And this is a very common immigrant story. So the fact that the father was waiting for his son at home, that the father's attention was on his son, that it was his heart's pursuit to be united with his son, that his attention was on his son. What radical love. What, what radical and supernatural love that we could look forward to in our friendship with God. And not only that, there was this gracious restoration of status. This son didn't need to do anything in terms of compensation. He had a whole speech prepared. But yet, as he gave that speech, the father almost ignored it. He, the, the son gave the speech and the father just immediately put the rope, the ring, the sandals on him and start to make preparations for an entire celebration honoring this son to the public. This is such a gracious restoration of status. There was no earning game. There was no, there's no um, earning that need to happen with the, the father. The, the father didn't leverage this moment. And this is really significant because a child's achievement, excellence, status, title, all of that is, is oftentimes very important, especially in a first generation immigrant Asian American home. Now, this is not to feed into the stereotype that Asian Americans are really big on academic excellence and so on and so forth. Part of that is true, but there's a reason for that. Because when a child is victorious, whether in school or at work, it's a win for the whole family. It's a sign that the family made it, that they, they went past survival and they're actually beginning to thrive, which is why it's such a big deal to that family. But the fact that this son basically financially gutted his father, betrayed him, and yet he did not need to compensate. He did not need to strive. He did not need to earn. He just needed to present himself. His worthiness was contingent on the mere fact that he was his father's son. That was it. It was not in what he contributed or put onto the table. It wasn't what he earned. It was just simply that he was his father's son. And this is the kind of radical love we see in the cross. And it's good news to someone like me. And it gives me much hope for the generations to come. Hello community, my name is Moses Mkisa and I'm the lead pastor here at Worship Harvest in Kampala, Uganda. 
and I'm very honored and excited to bring you some kingdom perspectives from a, a text in the Bible that is well spoken about, and that's the scripture talking about the prodigal son or the prodigal father, whichever way you look at it. And the perspective I want to bring to you is the perspective of the manifestation of the orphan spirit. You know, I'm the last of six children from my mother and my father. And when I was eight years old, my dad was shot dead. And from that time began the struggle of trying to figure out life. My mother had to take care of all of us. She was like the father and the mother in the home. And I'm the last and we are six. And you're looking for affirmation. You're looking for attention. You're looking for a way of making it in life. And so we learned how to take care of ourselves, how to fend for ourselves. And unfortunately, many times, how to even uh, manipulate situations and relationships to survive, just to make it out. By the grace of God, my mother happened to manage to take all of us to school. And that was our ticket out of what would have been a very difficult situation. But through that experience, I've learned a lot about the orphan spirit. And the negative side of it is that even when later on God brought other people into my life who loved me and wanted the best for me, like my pastors, spiritual leaders, disciples, my father-in-law and others, I found it a bit of a difficulty relating with them because I hadn't grown up with that situation with my own dad. But over time, God has helped me. And I'm on the bend, if you could say I'm on the mend. Now, I want to bring to you three things that are manifested in that scripture in Luke chapter 15 about the prodigal son. And the first is that the orphan spirit will manifest itself even in the presence of a father. Because you find that these two sons were both behaving like orphans, even though their dad was alive. The first one said, uh, he asked his dad, give me my stuff, I want to go away. That usually happened after the dad has died, but it's as if he was wishing his dad to be dead so he could be given his things. And so he was given his things and he left. He started living like an orphan, even though he had a dad. The Bible says he was living a reckless life. Meanwhile, the second one stayed behind, but he spent all his time working in the garden, working in the fields, and he never had time to interact with the father. And so you find that even though the father was present, both of these sons were behaving like they were orphans. You find that today there are so many Christians. We have a father in heaven who loves us and cares for us. But we have done one of two things. Either we think he's there just to give us what we want and we don't care about the relationship we have with him. So our prayer lists are filled with, give me my stuff. I don't care about you. Or on the other hand, there's a whole group of people who they think that the whole idea about Christianity is working, 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 working for an unappreciative God who we don't know if he loves us. And so we find that, that even with the presence of our Heavenly Father, many times we've gone off in these two directions, either not cherishing his presence, but just what he has to give us, or if we are not that kind of people, we, we decide that we are going to work. But in the midst of work, we still don't cherish his presence and relationship. The second way the orphan spirit manifests itself is in relationships, in relationships. The orphan spirit looks at relationships transactionally. 
You see, when I was an, living under the orphan spirit, I approached every friendship, every new relationship with the idea of what can I get from this person? And you find that this younger son who had gone and blown everything, when it occurred to him that he was starving, said, my father has many servants and they have food to eat. I will go and tell my father I've been a bad son. Now make me one of your hired servants. Hire me. Pay me for food. Transaction. It's not that I want the relationship with my father restored. No, rather, I, I'm hungry and I need something to eat. And I think my father's farm has enough food if I go and work. It's a transactional relationship. How about the son who remained at home? You know what he's told is that you've never given me even a small goat to celebrate with my friends. He stayed home, but he too had a transactional relationship. And you find that in church, many times we are Christians. We have come to Christ. We have a heavenly father, but we have a transactional relationship. We are looking at what can I get from God? What, what do I need to do this Sunday for God to answer my prayer? For God to give me food? Or I don't think even something small is going to come out of it. So the orphan spirit and relationships leads transactional relationships. And the third thing I wanted to, to really show us is the orphan spirit and resources. Resources. The second son who left home, the Bible says that he wasted his father's uh, livelihood in riotous living, in reckless living. One expression of the orphan spirit is when we are wasteful of resources. Things that cost a lot of resources to acquire, we waste them. We always are ready to go and get something else before the first one is done. And on the other hand, the one who stayed home was in a needy kind of scenario. So one is wasting and one is not recognizing that what the father has is his. The father told him, my son, everything I have is yours all along you didn't know. So I find that even in church, there are two kinds of people. The wasteful group and the one who thinks that God doesn't give anything good. So what do we do about this? I think the way home is somewhere in the middle. It's not about the, 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 uh, our expressing our orphanhood in the presence of the father or our having transactional relationships with God, or our being wasteful or needy. It's about taking our position as sons and daughters of God. The solution is to embrace family, embrace God as your father for real, and understand that he cares more about your relationship with him than anything else. And then embrace the family called church, because in that church, in the family called church, God has given us brothers and sisters, uncles and aunties, nieces and nephews, people that can become part of our larger ecosystem of family because we are made for relationship, not to leave us orphans in the Father's house. God bless you. The story of the prodigal son can be captured in two words. Rumspringa and repentance. Now, no matter from which community expression you're joining us, just say those two words after me. You ready? Here we go. Rumspringa. Repentance. Funny sounding word, rumspringa, isn't it? I mean, rumspringa. I mean, rumspringa literally means like running around. 
And it's a word used to describe the Amish practice of allowing youth, as, as some would say, to sow their wild oats. Now, not every Amish community practiced this, but the ones that do allow this freedom for kids around 15, 16 years of age. And this freedom grants these teenagers permission to leave the community, go out on their own, experiment with the outside world in whatever way they choose. But it also comes with an understanding that when the young person comes back, they have to make a choice, a life-defining choice. They can choose baptism within the local Amish church and a life of following after Jesus, or they leave the community permanently, turn their back on family and faith, and choose to live in the world for good. Well, in Luke chapter 15, when it says, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living, it's telling us that the prodigal son had taken kind of a, a rumspringer. Now, my hunch is, I think I'm safe in saying that few, if any of us, are Amish. But that hasn't stopped us from taking a rumspringer of our own, has it? Now, we may have other names for it. We may call it freshman year. We may call it spring break or midlife crisis resulting in buying a Harley without asking your wife springer. And rumspring isn't something that only teenagers do. And rumspring isn't something that only happens once. In fact, some of us are on a rumspringer right now. If we're honest, we know we've wandered far from what is meant to be home. And we're looking to other people, other places, than the father and home to satisfy us. We might even call it, I'm just following my heart or I'm experimenting. But the truth is right now we feel lost. And at some point, like the prodigal son, we all have a choice to make. A few moments ago, we heard the choice the prodigal son made. It describes it right there in the text in Luke 15, 17 and 18. It says, when he came to his senses, he said, I will set out and go back to my father. And that's where there's this turn in the son's story, right? He, he came to his senses. How, however long he was gone, whatever he'd done, he finally realized, this is not at all, not at all what I want. And, and maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're at the tail end of a bad decision. Maybe for a long time, you didn't see the bad decisions you were making. You didn't see the pain you were causing. You didn't see the chaos you were creating. You might have had a friend, a family member, a spouse even tell you they're praying for you. They're hoping you come to your senses. Some of us have actually had people confront us, sit us down, and explain to us in vivid detail how our life is spinning out of control. And despite all the warnings from life, our conscience, and others, we just didn't see it. And, and we wouldn't hear it. I think most of us know this story. Most of us know this story all too well. And maybe today is the day where you come to your senses. It's time to acknowledge that your life is heading in a direction that's far, far from where you want it to be or where God wants it to be. And today it's time to come home. Coming to our senses, acknowledging that our decisions have taken us to a place where we, we never could have imagined, that's the step that leads towards a brand new life. That's the step that leads towards starting over. Author Richard Rohr explains it this way. He says, you cannot heal what you do not acknowledge. And what you do not consciously acknowledge will remain in control of you from within, festering and destroying you and those around you. 
see, after the son came to his senses, he did something else. He made a decision to set out and go back to his father. He made the decision to come home. See, if the first word that describes our story is rumspringa, right there is where we see the second word, repentance. Repentance. Now, now repentance kind of gets a bad rap sometimes because church has not always done a great job of explaining what it means. We often only hear repentance in connection with our eternal destiny. And if we don't repent, we're going to burn in hell forever. And repentance has been used as, as like a scare tactic for years and years. But today what I want to do is I want to set the story straight on what repentance really means. Take a look at these two words. Metanoia, teshuva. All right, metanoia is the Greek word for repent, and we find it used throughout the New Testament part of the Bible. Teshuva is the Hebrew word for repent, and we find it in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, let me show you what these two words mean in their original language. The New Testament word metanoia means the changing of one's mind, changing one's mind. And teshuva means actually to return, to return. Are you following me? See, repentance means after the rumspringer, you start to change your thinking. And in change your thinking, you return to where you came from. And so when Jesus tells the story, he says the son finally came to his senses. He decided to return to his father. Here at Community, we say it like this. Finding your way back to God. This story has two words. Rumspringa and repentance. And those two words truly have the power to change your life and alter your eternity. I believe that. And my guess is a lot of us, maybe even right now, as you're hearing me talk, you're coming to your senses. You're recognizing some of the decisions we've made have led us to places we, we never wanted to be there. We never wanted to go there. They, it may have been financial decisions. It may have been relational decisions. It may have been decisions we made in the moment because they made us feel good, even though we knew in the moment it was wrong. And now we're in a place far from God and somewhere we never intended to be. And if you want to change, if you truly do want to start over, if you're going like, I want to redo, but somehow that rumspring has kind of left this residue of shame and guilt and a, even a healthy dose of fear, and you find yourself asking, I mean, could God ever forgive someone like me? Will God and his people actually really accept me? Will they take me in? Th these are some of the questions that run through all of our heads. And hear me on this, okay? Hear me on this when you're asking those questions with an emphatic yes, yes, yes. All that can change today, just like it did when the sun came home. You too, you can find your way back to God. See, the story of the prodigal son, it's a story of rumspringa and repentance. And it's my story. It's your story. It's all of our story. And today can be the day you come to your senses. Today can be the day where you decide to return. Today can be the day that you come back home. What a cool way to reflect on uh, Jesus' story of the prodigal son. I hope that was helpful for you and you found new insights. I Just a couple quick thoughts. You know, I just love how faith uh, Cho gave us insight into the relational dynamics in immigrant families and how that Im 
impacted her take on this story. You know, my, my family was fairly expressive, both verbally and physically. And, and so, you know, for me personally, it's not a huge stretch for me to think about my father, you know, running, even running out to hug me or to kiss me and, and to verbally express his favor on, on me. Um, now, maybe not if I'd blown my inheritance, but, which isn't something I expect to receive from him, by the way, but <laughs> hugs and kisses, I do. Um, but I have to tell you, Faith's story and how she talked about it makes me wonder if maybe because of my experience, I tend to take for granted the overwhelming love the Heavenly Father has for me uh, because of the love that I've received from my own dad. And then it kind of makes me think that maybe the person I relate to more in this story than anybody else is that older brother, you know, who had access to that kind of relationship all along, but took it for granted, even ignored it. And I think that's often, sadly, how I relate to God. And I'm not sure that I'd ever seen it from that perspective before. Something I'm going to give some thought to. Now, while Moses also, um, his take, um, man, what he shared was amazing, I thought. And I would never would have thought about the orphan spirit um, and how that could color our take on this story that Jesus told as well. And while being an orphan was certainly not my experience, I was so convicted about how I, I too, and maybe you felt the same way, carry that orphan spirit into my relationship with God. And again... You know, I can't help but see myself on the older brother, right? The one who remained at home. I've had a relationship with Christ for, you know, years, even decades. I could have access to the Father anytime I want, but still find myself somehow at times feeling like I've got to earn his favor. And so it becomes all about working rather than just simply enjoying the presence of the Father and the blessings that come from being at home with him. Uh, so, so here's my biggest takeaway, and I hope you're reflecting on this and will continue throughout the day. Uh, truthfully, I've always seen myself more as the prodigal in this story. Uh, the younger son who blew his inheritance before returning to his father. But I've got to tell you, today I see a lot more of the older brother in me. I'm not sure I like that, but I'm convicted by it. Um, and so I'm going to wrestle with that some more. And then what Dave shared, you know, I, I would guess most of us have experienced times in our lives that we would call rumspringa. Um, maybe some of you find yourselves in a rumspringa season or moment or experience right now where you do, you feel like you're far from home, longing um, to return, maybe to even come back. And we, we like to say around here that finding your way back to God is a life-changing moment for sure, but it's also a life-growing process where regularly, even daily, I don't know about you, but I find myself um, lured away from God, distracted, wandering, but then when I return, always finding him there with open arms, wanting to welcome me back. And so, like Dave said, I just want to tell you that God would want nothing more than for you today uh, to find yourself back in his loving arms, uh, whether that be, you know, for the first time, or maybe the third time or the tenth time, whatever that might be for you. Um, just want to encourage you, you know, leave your regrets from the past in the past. Open yourself to his embrace. Uh, let his love break through any barriers that might be in the way and, and take your place as his beloved child. For in the Father's arms, that's where you truly um, are at home. You're at home. So let's pray. Father God, thank you that... Um, you are our Heavenly Father, that we are not orphans. Lord, that um, no matter what the last week, last month, or last year has been like, God, that when we turn back to you, when we re truly repent and we have that change of mind and we return home, that you are already there 
not just waiting to welcome us, but you're literally running after us. And God, it's just hard to even imagine that. So God, if we're here today and maybe we, we just feel distance between um, ourselves and you, God, help us to just sense your love and grace. Um, you're welcome. Your welcoming arms, God. And if, if maybe, uh, Lord, we've, um, you know, known you for a, a season, maybe a long time, but God, we just feel like it's just somehow about work and, and effort, Lord, that we would relax, relax in your presence and, and just know that you love us and you want us to be in your presence. God, we just thank you for Jesus. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.